to the Central British Lecture Series. Uh, tonight, I'm very, very pleased to introduce Jean-Pierre Fillon to you, who is a unique person in France. Uh, Jean-Pierre Fillon is one of the best leading experts on the Arab world. He speaks fluent Arabic. In fact, when he started to teach at Sciences Po, it was in Menton, you know, in Menton near Nice, in the wonderful Riviera. We have this special program on the Arab world. And uh, Jean-Pierre uh, started at Sciences Po by teaching in Arabic uh, to a, a group of mostly uh, Arabic uh, students about, uh, about the Arab world. Uh, Jean-Pierre um, has started his career by working in humanitarian missions in Lebanon and in Afghanistan. And I think, in a way, probably Afghanistan was one of our first yeah. sort of meeting points, because I was on the Soviet side and he was on the Afghan, Afghan side. Uh, and then Jean-Pierre joined the Foreign Service, Le Quai d'Orsay, uh, where he, he did a very beautiful career. Uh, very, uh, very rapid uh, <coughs> career, first assigned to Amman um, and then to uh, Tunis in Tunisia. And he also served as an advisor to the Minister of Defense in the early 1990s, the Minister of the Interior, and also uh, the Prime Minister's uh, cabinet. So he, in a few years, had a, a, an amazing uh, experience both in Paris and, um, and abroad. Uh, now, uh, Jean-Pierre is a full-time academic, full-time <coughs> associate professor at Sciences Po. Uh, he is uh, working with Gilles Kepel in the Middle East chair at Sciences Po and teaches, I mean, one of his courses is the LSE Sciences Po uh, joint, uh, uh, joint course. Jean-Pierre is unique because he also writes a lot <laughs> and, and publishes a lot, uh, quite a few books already. Uh, one that I really liked very much, and it's been translated in 2006, The Boundaries of, of Jihad, and uh, the one that uh, just came out and is being translated into English uh, with the University of California Press, The Apocalypse in Islam. Uh, and uh, for that book uh, in French, Jean-Pierre won the prize by the French History Convention, Les Rendez-vous de l'Histoire. Jean-Pierre has a formidable topic. <laughs> Can Europe uh, make a, a difference in the Middle East? Uh, and there will be uh, quite enough time for comments and questions after his presentation. Jean-Pierre, merci d'être avec nous. The floor is yours. Thank you very much. So I'm, I'm moving over here. I'm overwhelmed by every word uh, Marie just uh, told, and I really want to thank you all for being here. I want to thank LSE and especially the European Institute and Maurice Fraser for this very kind invitation. And uh, not only... Uh, 
uh, I teach in the framework of the joint uh, uh, degree between LSE and Sciences Po, but I had the pleasure <laughs> one hour ago to meet previous students, so I, I, I'm still, you know, in this very positive mood and uh, I don't feel totally out of place. And I'm also very honored to speak in the Sheikh uh, Zayed Auditorium because I had the uh, privilege to meet uh, Sheikh Zayed and uh, he was one of the greatest leaders of uh, the Arab world and the pleasure was not only of meeting him personally, it was at listening to him uh, uh, reciting poetry. He was a great poet and most of his uh, poetry was not learned, it was spontaneous and when you know, Western officials wanted to deal with you know, crucial or more uh, uh, urgent issues, very often he cooled them down by reciting a poem. I just love this and I wanted to pay this tribute in the Sher Zayed Auditorium. So can Europe make a difference in the Middle East? That's a very tough uh, question. I will try to address it and I will use first uh, my recent experience at uh, Georgetown when I was a visiting professor uh, last fall and I had a, a graduate course about Europe and the Middle East. In fact, I had to create uh, the course from scratch because there was very little literature available and the very relevance of the topic was discussed with my uh, American friends and colleagues. So I had uh, my uh, students, uh, US students, who were brave enough to choose that course. So to make them relax, I started by telling them that in the beginning, the bad guys were the Europeans. And uh, that's a good thing with being an historian or being trained as an historian is that you can go all over, cite Spico agreements, how the Middle East was carved between uh, London and Paris, how Europe is responsible for most of this mess, historically speaking, of course. So my students obviously felt more comfortable. And one day, one of my Israeli colleagues was kind enough to address my group and he told me afterwards that probably I had gathered in that classroom half of the people in the United States that could uh, speak about the third pillar of the Barcelona process or European neighborhood policy. Uh, so my student and myself felt so proud but a little bit lonesome in the great world of American academia. <laughs> a few months before, I was giving a lecture in Arabic at Al-Quds University, uh, which is in Eastern Jerusalem, just on the other side of the wall. The wall is in fact crossing the football uh, uh, playground of the university, so it's impossible not to see it. And I was invited to lecture in Arabic about the European policy in the Middle East. And the amphitheater was packed full. And from my little experience, I could feel that the majority of the audience was not particularly supportive of the Palestinian Authority. But I did my talk. I went through the three conditions EU imposed before engaging Hamas, recognition of Israel, renunciation to violence, an endorsement of the agreements previously uh, uh, signed uh, between uh, Israel and the PA. And then came the Q&A, the part I prefer, and I'm sure 
that will be the part I prefer tonight. And the students were so critical of Europe. And I told them that EU was by far the biggest donor in the West Bank and Gaza, $1 billion a year. But they answered back in their own words, of course, that they didn't want more help, they wanted a state. So Europe in the Middle East has two main problems, a visibility problem and a credibility problem. I will try to put this in an historical perspective without going back to the infamous Suez expedition when UK and France just crashed down together in 56 with the rising star of the USA on the horizon of the Middle East. The first time Europe tried to act collectively in the Middle East, it was 1973. We were nine in the European community. Uh, UK had just joined the club. And it was after the Kippur-Ramadan war and the first oil shock. And the EU-Arab dialogue started. So there has been ever since this Israeli accusation that Europe was ready to sell Israel security in order to secure its oil supply. Well, one could say that US military airlift to Israel was not exactly being neutral and was clearly taking sides. And many Europeans considered, along with the French Minister of Foreign Affairs, Michel Jobert, that uh, that is quote trying to come back to one's land is not exactly an unexpected aggression and many Europeans thought that the Arab move was justified to break the stalemate about the territories occupied since 1969 but Israel and the USA were mad which was already one part of the story but the other part for the story was that the Euro-Arab dialogue never really worked out basically because the Arabs were divided. There was no Ara Arab collective dynamics. There was a division between uh, PLO, who was stri striving to become and finally became in 74 the legitimate and sole representative of the Palestinian people with Jordan condemning this Arab decision. But PLO had also its feud with Syria and Syria was interfering more and more in invading Lebanon, and Iraq was the arch-revolutionary regime in front of Saudi, and Egypt was tired of being the leader and paying the price for being it. Egypt wanted Sinai back, period. So President Sadat expelled his Soviet advisor and switched side to US alliance before visiting Jerusalem in 1977. That started the Camp David process, and uh, President Carter sponsored a separate peace between Egypt and Israel. But the uh, European community refused to endorse anything but a comprehensive settlement based on UN Security Council resolutions. And uh, under the, the leadership of Valéry Giscard d'Estaing, who advocated Palestinian right to self-determination, the European leaders gathered in Venice in June uh, 90, uh, endorsed a declaration about the illegality of the Israeli settlements, the legitimate rights of the Palestinian people, and the need to associate PLO to any uh, agreement. Imagine. It was indeed a long time ago. Most of you were not even born. 
Carter was equated with the Likud, and Europe supported talks with PLO, whose founding charter planned the destruction of Israel. So when Giscard d'Estaing had to step down in favor of François Mitterrand in May 1981, the socialist president changed gears. He supported Camp David, and he sent French soldiers, along with Italian, British, and Dutch ones, into the multinational force in Sinai. That was part of the Camp David Agreement. This was indeed time for multinational forces because of what the Reagan uh, administration called the war against the evil empire of the Soviet Union and what uh, uh, the uh, academics call the new Cold War. So there was one multinational force in Beirut in 82 two-thirds European, French and Italian, and one-third US, to evacuate Arafat and the PLO fighters that were besieged in Beirut by the Israeli army. Then there were the massacres in Sabra and Shatila, and came a second multinational force that British troops joined eventually. I was quite close to Mitterrand at that time. You can see it from my white beard. And the socialist president that fought the Venice Declaration was now striving to get European support to a more active Middle East diplomacy with not only uh, UN Security Council Resolution 242 that uh, condemns acquisition by force of occupied territories, but also the right of self-determination for the Palestinian people. Honest, it is not Gallic pride, stating that Middle East European diplomacy was then basically French fueled. It is a fact of diplomatic life in the 80s. Then came the first Intifada in uh, 1987, and Arafat was invited to Paris in May 89, and he said on French TV that the PLO charter was caduc, obsolete but he said it in French, not in English, not in Arabic, neither. And France tried to push for a UN-sponsored comprehensive settlement, but had to join the coalition to liberate Kuwait in the fall of 90, without any kind of linkage between West Bank, Gaza, and Kuwait. So there was no leverage after the liberation of Kuwait. There was a new world order of President Bush the first and his Secretary of State, James Becker, that ended with a showdown with Shamir and the Madrid Peace Conference in October 91. So indeed, the conference took place in Europe, and Spain was chosen, even though diplomatic relations with Israel dated only from 86. But Europe was only an observer. The conference was under uh, American-Soviet uh, sponsorship that were the last days of Soviet Union. And Europe was an observer under Dutch presidency, and PLO was excluded. There was a Palestinian-Jordanian delegation. So the much-celebrated Madrid process quickly reached a stalemate because of the issues of the terms of references, UN or not UN, and of the Palestinian representation, PLO or not PLO. 
So a secret back channel through a non-EC European state, Norway, was opened. And they ended with the Oslo Agreements in 1993 that were signed at the White House but were negotiated without even the knowledge of the Americans and of course of the other Europeans. Europe was out of the process but tried to contribute to its implementation in a voluntaristic way. And when Rabin, the Prime Minister of Israel, was killed by a Jewish extremist in Tel Aviv in November 95, everybody feared for the peace process, and Europe pushed for the Euro-Mediterranean process, or Barcelona process, because it started in Barcelona, with three pillars, political and security, economic and financial, social and cultural. So the ambition European ambition was to save the Israeli-Arab peace process by widening the scope of discussion and diluting the conflict in regional cooperation. And in fact, after Netanyahu became prime minister, I'm talking about May 96, huh, the peace process was frozen or suspended, no matter different uh, adjectives were used. And the only forum where Israelis would meet Syrians or Lebanese were Barcelona meetings. And Miguel Angel Moratinos, uh, one of the most gifted uh, Spanish diplomats who, was, uh, who had been ambassador to uh, Israel, became the first special envoy of the European uh, community to the Middle East. So Europe enhanced its politi political profile in the Middle East and was uh, uh, put into the picture by the Palestinian Authority and Yasser Arafat when the end of the transition period uh, came close. So what was the transition period? In the Oslo Agreement, there was the idea that uh, the agreement was only temporary and that after a five-year period a final settlement should be at least discussed and inshallah implemented. So at the end of the five-year period nothing was happening, nothing was moving. Netanyahu was really very keen on freezing or suspending the process. So Arafat wanted to proclaim unilaterally a Palestinian state. So the Europeans feared that it would totally uh, break down the, what was left of the peace process, and they proposed a quid pro quo that Arafat would not proclaim the Palestinian state, but that the notion, the principle of the Palestinian state would be endorsed by the European. So in fact that was an initiative of the German presidency which is quite important to underline. And it was endorsed at the Berlin summit in 99 with the idea that nobody could veto the right of the Palestinians to a state. So this Palestinian state, this European involvement for the Palestinian state came three long years before the Palestinian state 
became the mantra of US diplomacy. But European involvement was brought basically to an halt by the Second Intifada in 2000 and its brutal repression in 2001-2002. Development projects, support, an airport in Gaza. Yes, yes, there was a time when people were funding a port and airport in Gaza, not just talking about lifting the blockade. So all this was destroyed, and nobody ever asked the Israeli army to compensate for European taxpayers' money. That's life. But Moratinos was not deterred. He stuck to his own shuttle diplomacy, and he was even more resilient than Clinton and Albright after the collapse of the Israeli-Palestinian talks in Camp David in the summer of 2000. In fact, Europe defended the so-called Clinton parameters with more tenacity than US diplomacy. And it went to Taba in February 2001 when the Americans were not even there. And Moratinos appeared as a dedicated note taker, but also as an honest broker. And that was one of the reasons why Spain could launch in Madrid the quartet, peace quartet for the Middle East, where you had uh, European Union, because 2002 now we were a union, with Solana, higher representative, since 1999, the UN, US, and Russia. The Taba uh, talks were the basis for the grassroots peace plan of Geneva that was uh, uh, achieved in 2003 with no uh, PA nor Israeli government being involved. But at least it was uh, a very important document to put in uh, basic reasonable terms what could be or should be a final agreement. But at that time, on the ground, the situation was pretty hopeless. And in Washington, the Bush administration claimed that the road to Jerusalem went through Baghdad, a bumpy road indeed. Now Solana, as a higher representative, had Mark Ote, who succeeded uh, Moratino as a special envoy. So Europe had already those, this political structure to interfere in the Middle East. Political dialogue was embedded in the association agreement signed with Israel, Jordan, Lebanon, Egypt, and the PA. Europe was and is the first trade partner with Israel, was and is the first donor to the Palestinians. There was a consistent European cooperation to promote with the PA the infrastructure of a future Palestinian state. After Ariel Sharon decided to withdraw uni unilaterally from Gaza in August 2005, there was uh, an agreement that was uh, brokered by uh, Condi Rice, the Secretary of State, between Israel, the PA, and Egypt about Rafah. Rafah is the main crossing point between the Gaza Strip and Egypt, so it's vital but just for the life of the Gazans. So um, uh, Europe became uh, the implementing force 
of a US brokered, uh, supposedly technical, but in fact, 100% political agreement. Huh? So uh, 100 uh, European policemen were sent at the crossing point. It was called the UBAM, European Union Border Assistance Mission. So there is a border. <laughs> and um, that was quite efficient uh, during a few months. But Hamas clearly won the EU-monitored and EU-financed parliamentary elections in January 2006. And Europe uh, put forward the three conditions I mentioned, recognition of Israel, renunciation of violence, uh, acknowledgement of the previous agreement, and uh, Hamas refused to endorse these conditions, and the UBAM was withdrawn. And then Europe created a specific mechanism to avoid contacts with Hamas administration, which led, in fact, to, uh, to privatize part of the public cooperation that was done before with the PA, and, of course, to additional costs. After Hamas took over Gaza violently in June 2007, there was, in Ramallah, because there was a clear division now between the West Bank and Gaza, an emergency government under the leadership of Salam Fayyad, who is still the Prime Minister, and Europe decided to help massively this government. Then the Annapolis Conference was convened in November 2007 with the hope to revive the two-state solution, and it was followed in Paris by a Donors Conference for the Palestinian state uh, explicitly. Seven billion dollars were pledged until 2011 with Europe being the most important and most generous donors. But as you may know, nothing moved on the ground, no checkpoint was dismantled, and the settlements expanded. Naturally or not naturally, I won't go into this debate, they expanded certainly. Despite of that, in June 2008, EU decided to enhance its cooperation with Israel and dis to disconnect between the relation with Israel and the political process, not even speaking about the settlement issue. So the Palestinian Authority was pretty incensed, and the fact that Palestinians criticized this openly was labeled by the Israelis as very detrimental to the peace process. So that is about the Israeli-Palestinian track. But what about the rest of the Middle East? With Lebanon also, we can find a sustained European political involvement and a very generous financial assistance to restore the sovereignty of Lebanon. But you have also military presence. It's not under the flag of EU, but under the flag of UN, and in the framework of the UNIFIL, United Nations uh, interim uh, force in, uh, in Lebanon. So it's interim, but it's since 78, since the first Israeli invasion of 78. So the mandate was to restore sovereignty. So in fact, it took 28 years to fulfill the mandate and really to restore sovereignty. But in the meantime, 
thanks to Unifil, South Lebanon didn't totally collapse. Two thirds of the military, military leaders were Europeans from 78 until now. And 60% uh, of the Unifil Blue Helmets were Europeans in the 90s with a significant Irish contribution to Unifil. When uh, the Israel Hezbollah war uh, uh, took place in the summer of 2006, there was a great political involvement by Spain, Italy, and France. Europe, Europe in general, but certainly they were the vanguard, the Latin triangle. Right? <laughs> and they were, in fact, the three pillars of the Unifil Plus uh, that was created at the end of the war on the basis of the ceasefire between Israel and Lebanon. It was the uh, UN Security Council Resolution 1701 with a beefed up Unifil, beefed up in terms of, of uh, um, military personnel, but more importantly in terms of weapons, you know, with new uh, 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 armored vehicles and even tanks being sent to South Lebanon. And finally, finally, the Lebanese army could be deployed at the border with Israel. So until today, uh, Spain, Italy, and France represent the backbone of the Unifil. And now, in fact, three quarters of the personnel of the Unifil come from Europe with Germany monitoring uh, the ceasefire at sea. So you had a strong military European involvement to neutralize what was, until recently, the most active front lines uh, in uh, the Middle East. With Iran, the whole process of negotiation between the international community and Tehran about the nuclear program was initiated by United Kingdom, Germany, and France with Solana as higher representative in 2003. And until today, Solana is negotiating on behalf of the international community. So you have the E3 plus 3. The plus 3 are the three non-European permanent members of the Security Council, uh, Russia, uh, United States, and China. And so he, he had a counterpart, La Ali Larijani, until 2007. With Said Jalili, it's more complicated. His proposal are conditioned by the suspension of the Iranian enrichment, which of course is not yet accepted by the, uh, the Iranians. But uh, I want to stress the fact that EU reports, Solana reports, are the basis of UN positions, not only the resolution, but basically the analysis. You have the agency doing its technical work, but the political assessment is done by Solana on behalf of Europe. And last July in Geneva, you had the Solana Jalili talk and uh, 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 William Burns from the State Department, number three of the State Department, was sitting behind Solana. You know, that was the first Iranian-American diplomatic contact at such a level since 79, but it was, if I may say, under the umbrella, huh, 
under the sponsorship of Europe. So it's interesting to, to, to have that in mind. In Iraq, in any significant military deployment by a EU member state will end in 2009. And the ones opened inside EU by the 2003 invasion seem to have healed. I heard yesterday in Washington there is no new Europe, no old Europe, there's just friendly Europe. So even though the most significant bilateral programs are granted by EU donors were part of the coalition. So you will be glad to know that EU as such spent nearly 1 billion euros from 2003 to 2008 on humanitarian and reconstruction assistance in Iraq, including 265 millions on governments and democracy programs one could discuss the visibility of such programs. But still, the twin Shia mausoleums in Samarra that were destroyed by Al-Qaeda in 2006 are being rebuilt by European Union. And the most recent provincial elections were partly funded by EU. So it's important to be honestly uh, proud of that. With the GCC, with the Gulf Cooperation Council, there is a cooperation agreement since 88, but a stalemate on the free trade agreement. Uh, European Union is the first trade partner to the Gulf. It has 18% of market share, and the stakes are, of course, very high because 22% of European oil come from the Gulf. But you have a political dimension that was enhanced through support to the Abdallah plan. So Abdallah was then Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia. Since 2005, he became the king of the Saudi uh, state. And this Abdallah plan is a comprehensive peace initiative that was endorsed by the Arab summit in Beirut in uh, 2002. Uh, the basic principle is full peace in um, compensation or in exchange for full withdrawal from the occupied territories. So full recognition, full diplomatic relations with Israel uh, and, the, and um, uh, Israel has to withdraw from all the occupied territories. In Sciences Po, to make a uh, speak, uh, Marie was kind enough to mention Menton. You know, Menton uh, is not only a wonderful place uh, near uh, the Italian border, it's also where Webb Ellis, the founder of rugby, uh, is uh, buried. Uh, he was, uh, uh, so you have pilgrimage of rugby fan to Webb Ellis tombs on the uh, Sciences Po, uh, oh no, sorry, <laughs> next to Sciences Po uh, campus, but on, uh, in the graveyard of Menton. Mm -hmm. So we have here at uh, Menton, uh, and we try to develop a Eurogolf integrated approach uh, with undergrad campus, specialized campus in Menton, but also master graduate studies in Paris, and uh, conferences and meetings either in Europe or in the Gulf. There were Eurogolf conference, Menton, Riyadh, Venice, Kuwait, and with Gilles Keppel that 
will be very present on LSE campus in the coming months, very active on that. So, Middle East, Israel-Palestine, Israel Lebanon, Iraq, Iran, Gulf, but with a more global ambition, Union for the Mediterranean was launched in July 2008 in Paris. The idea was to have a more inclusive process than the Barcelona process. It is in the line with the Barcelona process, but you have a co-presidency, North and South. Now it's Egypt and France. You have a, a siege in Barcelona, 43 members, the 27 EU members, and the states surrounding the Mediterranean. The initial French project was only about Mediterranean states, and it's uh, certainly good news that everybody in Europe got involved into it since uh, the Barcelona dynamics had been diluted in the European neighborhood policy, so it gave a new start to that, but uh, it's impossible to exclude, exclude politics, you know, even for the best intended regional outfit. So it can be for the best, for example, during the Paris summit you had the Israeli-Palestinian summit, or you had the Syrian-Lebanese summit, with the official announcement that Syria and Lebanon would exchange ambassadors, which was the first time since independence uh, in of the two countries in 43 that Syria acknowledged uh, very uh, symbolically the sovereignty of its neighboring state. But then you had the whole debate about the Arab League wanted to be part of the process, so it was admitted, but the quid pro quo was that because Israel was protesting, so Israel got uh, uh, deputy secretary general, so the Palestinian got a deputy secretary general, but this was easy because this was before Gaza. Mm -hmm. And since Gaza, everything has been frozen, suspended, uh, uh, and uh, Egypt made very clear on behalf of the Arab parties uh, and states that it was impossible to go on with this kind of dialogue under the current situation. So let us wait for the Doha Arab Summit at the end of this month to see if the Arab position towards the Union for the Mediterranean had changed or not. Gaza. Last Monday, in Sharm el-Sheikh, you had another donors conference to rebuild Gaza. So you have certainly a donor's fatigue with after so many conferences to rebuild what had been destroyed just before. Half of the money pledged in Sharm el-Sheikh is to balance peer budget. And only the other half goes to Gaza, but without dealing with Hamas. So European Committee, um, European uh, Commission, sorry, is again, as before, the main donor, along with uh, United States and Saudi Arabia. $4.5 billion were pledged. So we'll see how Gaza will be rebuilt, how quickly, and how. So can Europe make a difference in the Middle East? 
Certainly, yes. It has the military power, the diplomatic clout, the economic resources, and the security incentive. Does the EU want it? That's a big question mark. With often divisions. And in fact, countries like France are not seen so much as pro-Arab by others, but as post-colonial, a little bit passé. For many states, the idea of the integration of the Balkans, for example, constitutes a more daunting challenge in the Middle East. So the general consensus is in fact to be the second best to the United States. And for example, last December, there are proposals that I didn't read because they are not public. But uh, from what I gathered from the press and a few talks of these EU proposals to the US, for that EU was ready and able to contribute to confidence building measure and security arrangements in the framework of a US brokered and sponsored settlement. Do the US want this European involvement? In principle, yes. Especially when it comes to European financial leverage. But the reality is that, and I'm just been in DC for a while, and I could see it. After having negotiated internally between the White House, Capitol Hill, State Departments, different lobbies, it's already quite complex process. And then we go to the Middle East, the Israelis, the Arabs. So when you have to take EU into consideration, well, there's some kind of a fatigue also. So does Israel want it? Probably not. Despite the enhancement of the relationship in June 2008, I'm always very struck when I speak with my Israeli friends about their deep pessimism about the long-term relationship with Europe, mainly due to community-based demographic projection. And you have also the generation change in Israel. The political leaders, the founding father, they had uh, a very deep, complex, conflictual relationship with Europe, while one could say that Netanyahu is American and Lieberman Russian. Do the Arabs want it? It's not so sure despite all the public claims. In fact, very often the impression is that Arabs want Europe to help them enhance their position or negotiating or bargaining position with the US. That in fact Europeans are seen as uh, second class Americans and that Europe is just a stopover on the way to Washington. And this is even the case for many Palestinian leaders. So would the European difference be positive for the Middle East? Definitely yes. Because of the European ideal. I'm not only talking about Perez and regional cooperation and plant martial and so on and so forth. But basically the model of French-German reconciliation. 
the idea of addressing the roots of the conflict to build peace, real and lasting peace. Europe could certainly help to shift from conflict management to conflict resolution. And the recent and not so recent history proves us that anything short of a permanent settlement only brings more crisis, disasters, and ruins. So let us bet on conflict resolution thanks to Europe, and let us bet on peace in the Middle East. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jean-Pierre, for this uh, uh, amazing uh, historical uh, overview and uh, I think very convincing arguments. Uh, I, I think the, the one question that um, uh, comes to mind is it's clear that the visibility of the European Union policies and actions um, uh, is, is, is not there, not sufficiently, because I think a lot of what you said is probably not known uh, from a lot of the actors, even in the countries concerned, but um, what you've been um, telling us. But I had the question about the credibility, you know, because you said, you know, is it second class uh, Americans? Or, but I think it would be nice maybe if you said a little more about the credibility of the European actions in the long-term perspective because you gave us you know, the, the historical uh, background really to, to understand how the European Union has, has built a, a position and has tried to have, uh, to, to, to have policies even when it was made more difficult by American positions or Arab or Israeli uh, positions. So I think it, it, and maybe you will want to spend a little more time on the uh, recent conflict in Gaza and give your or assessment, maybe or maybe <laughs> not, on the visibility and credibility. And, and you know that, I mean, the, 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 the Gaza conflict was a, a very uh, hotly debated issue here mm. at, um, at LSE. But I'd like to, to take one or two questions to start, and, and if you please um, will introduce yourself uh, before you ask your question. Thank you. Thank you, uh, merci, and shukran. Uh, yeah, um, if if uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, it's uh, my name is Nasser Kalawun, mm -hmm. uh, Lebanese. Um, if uh, if one first uh, um, were to reverse the question and say, can the Middle East make a difference in the EU? And then obviously there will be another talk to uh, complement what uh, you said uh, fruitfully about the relationship, the organizing uh, uh, process of uh, peacemaking, especially about uh, Palestine itself. But, uh, and one would see like currents from the Middle East, uh, if one were revert the question, would be, uh, I mean, I would put it in three things. Uh, first of all, the uh, Middle East can make a differ difference in addition to oil to stabilize um, uh, European uh, economies, uh, economies now. Uh, two years ago, there was a strong opposition in Europe and the EU for the uh, entry of the sovereign funds, you know, uh, Arab and other sovereign funds. And it seems now because of the crisis, there is a kind of debate about it. 
and whether I think is to what conditions to be to to for them to enter so this number one the Middle East can contribute to Europe economic stability and the world at large that's number one oil number two number three would be also you touch a little bit about it the Christian Muslim Jewish tension which forms the background of what you said about the Israeli Arab conflict and this one is being fanned on one side Jewish extremism Muslim extremism and sometimes shots of you know a Christian confusion if you put this kind of things into three it will you need a vision to offer something in there what is the question now here to give only I mean to put the issue of interests with economic necessity now with a future vision that's on this case Europe and the US can offer leadership and real peace in the Middle East and not the kind of what you said if one were to summit if I were a Palestinian refugee a poor Palestinian refugee in Lebanese camp for 60 years and hearing what you said I say it's used that I'm not going to get anywhere you know I might be doing something else so in other words it would appeal to an Arab rich man what you said or what I say myself as well that what is the vision to put this issue of interest and not to restrict you or you role as being a Fred across you know or fireman thank you thank you another question Amnon Aran, I teach here at LSE. My question really is about the last point that you made about exporting, if you like, the European model to the Middle East. And I always seem to me that this comparison is slightly flawed in the sense that Europe reached that model after not one but two world wars, impoverished and collapsing empires, and a great deal of ethnic cleansing. And we're very far away from that in the Middle East. And in a sense, I would argue maybe that instead of the European model... You want more ethnic cleansing? I'm sorry? You want more ethnic cleansing? I didn't suggest that. I could maybe finish the question then. Perhaps you wouldn't suggest that. That's quite offensive, actually. What I was going to say, actually, that I think the idea of sort of exporting the economic cooperation as a solution to the Middle East is perhaps wrong. And what we should try first to deal with are the political and the security problems along the region, and from that to derive perhaps more robust economic frameworks. Thank you. Thank you. I take one more here, please, or maybe your two questions. Yes, please. Please go ahead. Hi. My name is Talha. I'm a graduate of the European Institute. I would like to ask Professor Filiou. You mentioned all the previous European initiatives in the Middle East, which, of course, failed to my knowledge. And it seems that whenever you come to foreign policy, not only in the Middle East, it's harder for Europe to speak in one voice. And we see, especially in the Middle East, French initiative, German initiative. And the last summer we saw the letter from the foreign ministries for Denmark, Italy, and Spain to the Syrian authorities. Would you agree that should the Lisbon Treaty come into force and the initiation of EU foreign minister position, it will increase the credibility and visibility of the EU in foreign policy and in the Middle East? Please go ahead and then. Yes, lots of questions. My name is Alexander Durst. I'm a student at the LSE. I was basically wondering what were your views on why the European Union doesn't actually advertise those donations to 
you know, the, the reconstruction of the Gaza Strip and all that, why, why doesn't it actually try to make those initiatives more public? You know, surely the EU, the EU would benefit from that. And my second question is, um, um, what do you think the significance of a potential integration of Turkey into the European Union, what, what would be the significance of that kind of initiative on Europe's role in the Middle East, you know, how would that be perceived by the various actors in the region, and is that a condition for greater involvement in European involvement in the region? Thank, Thank you. you. Jean-Pierre, maybe you can start with those first yes. questions. Yes. There's uh, quite uh, a lot in them. The, the topic was not complex enough, so we want to add to adapt Turkey, of obviously. Always make it more complex. Yes. So, you, you know, the, the issue of Middle East and Turkey is very intertwined in the public debate. Mm -hmm. uh, most of the opponents of uh, Turkey integration uh, cry that uh, uh, imagine uh, uh, Europe would have a border with Syria, Iraq would be drowned in uh, countries of conflict, eternal conflicts and mm -hmm. things like that. So that's the argument on one side. And on the other side, on the contrary, it is said that's a way to uh, uh, expand uh, the model uh, and it's not only uh, of economic cooperation this is where the founding father and in a way I, I, I try and answer you which is why when I speak about the European model I stress the French-German reconciliation and the French-German reconciliation was not about steel and coal it was about two uh, countries who probably inflicted to each other the worst that <laughs> can be inflicted and we decided uh, to uh, um, create a new relation. Uh, and they didn't uh, decide it by forgetting the past, not at all. Uh, so it's not exporting the model. Is that the idea uh, that uh, uh, one, one is trying to, to, to um, uh, uh, forget the, the issues at stake? Uh, are trying to uh, promote what is important and in that case we'll see how much uh, uh, I agree also with you well, economic development, prosperity if you don't address the political issues they explode back to you at one moment or another which is exactly what has been going on at least since 93 uh, since the peace process and probably before uh, uh, but uh, since 93 we can see the, 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 the answer so, in that case, Europe could not uh, say we have uh, um, a preconceived plan that we are ready to implement because that's not the case. Uh, we don't have uh, the, the, the means leverage to force it upon the uh, uh, parties at all. But a, a vision that coexistence and conflict don't go together. <laughs> that if you want really coexistence, you have to change the status quo and to really establish something else. That it's impossible, not even in the long term, but even in the midterm, to try that even an unstable instability of many oxymoron like this that have been coined for the Middle East is conceivable and that the central issues cannot be addressed at one time or another. So I'm no, um, uh, I'm no dreamer. Huh? I know how uh, uh, difficult
difficult it is, but the experience shows that every time, and look at the union for the Mediterranean, yeah, uh, the whole rationale is behind it. Politics, issues came back very quickly, not even one year after the, 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 the start of the process. So when I speak about European model, I speak and I think personally more about the idea that we, we, we don't put, uh, uh, we don't blind ourselves voluntarily. Uh, no, no French and no German blinded himself voluntarily in 63. And in fact, it was very debated, you know, uh, what was going on at that time. Um, certainly, if Lisbon Treaty would uh, pass and would have an undebated uh, political structure, uh, unified structure, that would uh, make uh, a difference. Uh, diplomacy in the Middle East is very paradoxical. Nobody wants to do it because it's too risky, and everybody wants to do it because you make headlines. So it's very difficult to say to any minister of foreign affairs of any nation, and of course European nation, no, don't go to the Middle East because we're waiting for European position to be, to be. You know, if you if you go there immediately, you go on CNN and Al Jazeera, and you go global. Going Middle East is going global for any European leader. So the temptation of going global is very strong. Yeah? So I'm not even discussing to go to the Middle East to say this or to say that, but the very idea to go in a not so much coordinated way. And of course, the fact that it will be more coordinated will help, but you know, white beard. You know, I lived in 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 a time when there was no Solana, when there was no special involved, when there was no budget of European Commission for the Middle East, when there were where all these figures I'm talking about were uh, impossible to dream. The idea that Europe collectively could mobilize billion dollar one billion dollars for the Palestinian was sheer uh, um, fantasy. Yeah? So, of course. What I just tried to, to, to convey is that uh, at one moment, if there is a political will, the change will be, uh, the, the change cannot be that dramatic. You know, because it will be a change of dimension, of intensity, and of ambition. But of course, the situation can go on. But if there is a change, it has to be, and it will be. Because uh, there won't, there won't be uh, the, the, the step will be too strategic to take to be able to to, to stand in the middle. That, that was my only idea. And about um, uh, what the Middle East could uh, bring to Europe, well, again, I don't want to, to sound too uh, uh, parochial, but that's exactly in this Eurogolf uh, program what we try to promote. The idea is that. Uh, there's not only the Euro-Mediterranean space, but if you really want to make a space of prosperity and stability with all the components of these two uh, ambitions, you have to include the Gulf. It cannot stay, uh, but that we have very good and strong feedbacks from the private sector because they know that. <laughs> you know, it's impossible. They know that now the main investors in Morocco 
are from uh, the Gulf. That, uh, it's impossible to imagine uh, financial stability in the Mediterranean without the Gulf. But I'm not talking about that. L look about um, uh, uh, the, the, the agreement in Lebanon was reached in uh, Doha. It was not reached in the UN. It was not reached in Paris. It was not. Uh, so the Gulf has also a political uh, power uh, that uh, has been uh, projected in the recent year in a very dramatic way that certainly could contribute to the general uh, welfare and stability of uh, the region. Yes, please. Hello, my name is Ivaila Ivanova. Uh, I'm a student at LSE. Um, can the Euro-Mediterranean partnership be, uh, be set or be looked as a continuation of the global Mediterranean policy? Um, and what are the flows of the Mediterranean partnership in your view? And does the Union for the Med address any of those? Okay. Mm -hmm. There's two more questions there. One over there. Yes, please. Please go ahead. Thank you. My name is Marion Stein. I'm originally from the U.S. I'm not trying to redraw geography, but I wonder if you could speak a bit about Afghanistan and whether or not you think an increased presence of the EU in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan especially now with President Obama's pledge to increase U.S. presence, if you think that would help the EU in the Middle East. Thank you. My name is Federica Bicke and I teach here at NSC. Yeah. Um, in your experience, which issue do the Europeans find most divisive and on which issue they mm -hmm. tend instead to kind of automatically cooperate? That's, a, that's an excellent question yeah. from an excellent There's question. There's one more question also. here. Professor, I was very interested in everything you have to say. Listen very carefully. My name is Ibtihal Bassis. Um, I have trouble pronouncing your name. You'll have trouble pronouncing mine. No, uh, because my French is probably not as good as your Arabic. No, um, I'm here from Islam Channel. I present um, on a uh, show called Muslim Dilemma, which deals with women's issues. And one of the issues we dealt with was actually Lebanon during the 2006 war. Uh, I would just like to... I, I, don't want to harp on about this idea of credibility, but I was reading in the paper today that the UK is now ready for talks with Hezbollah. And uh, I just wanted to, to answer this question, whether you agree with the comment of Remy Alaf, a Middle East expert at London's Chatham House, that the current Western policy doesn't make any sense. You can't base Middle East policy on whether a party has good relations with Israel or not. So they're willing to talk to Hezbollah, but they won't talk to Hamas because of the, the whole um, problem with Israel. This links to the issue of credibility. I'm not going to take up much more than time, which is what the Lebanese gentleman was saying, which is that the masses, the people on the ground, are very suspicious of the EU getting involved. So when there was the death of Hariri, uh, we saw um, French ambassadors running to speak to Hariri Jr., there was great suspicion on the ground that what's actually happening, that what, uh, when America is perceived to have agents as rulers in the Middle East, people are very suspicious of their own rulers in the Middle East. Um, what's being seen is that the, the Europeans, 
the EU is trying to usurp those American agents and place European agents so they can, in very basic terms, grasp or get a hold of the resources that that gentleman was talking about, which is the oil. That's the general feeling on the ground. What's your answer to that? Thank you very much. Thank you. So I will start with the last question. You know, I met Rafik Hariri, and when he was killed, the idea that the French ambassador would not rush to his son to pay condolences and to pay tribute to his father and to send the messages of the President of the Republic would have been absurd. That's the least you can do in front of such a tragedy. And the question of agents, I know a little bit about the vision, very often conspiracy-oriented visions of agents of this, agents of that. And in fact, I'm quite impressed by the capability of local actors, being, by the way, Israeli or Arabs, of basically sticking to their own agendas. So I met very few agents. And a lot of people were clever enough to use resources, local resources, national resources, international resources, to push their own agenda. For Europe, it's not a matter of an abstract matter. What is happening in the Mediterranean is very intimately linked with Europe. We would like to ignore it. We won't be able to do it. So it's not only based on the relationship with this local actor or that local actor. That's also a factor, and you saw it in UK. Imagine what it is in France of heavy domestic debate. And including the issues that you mentioned about Hezbollah or Hamas. So I think that the case, and of course, you have, and this I will try to answer about the Euro-Mediterranean process. One of the main weakness of the process was the fact that the programs that were dealing with the civil society were, to say the least, neutralized, to say much worse, marginalized. That Europe was not able to promote a real grassroots cooperation, even when it had programs for entrepreneurs, youth programs, student program, you know, there should be, obviously, and this one of the project of the Union of the Mediterranean, and Averroes, or Imdrushd program, like an Erasmus, but for the Euro-Mediterranean, for the students, 
for mobility, for exchanges. This was never uh, achieved uh, fully, and it's due partly to uh, European bureaucracy and technocratic procedures, but also to, to the fact that the regimes uh, involved didn't want that uh, direct dialogue with uh, NGOs, unions, and students, and youth, especially the youth. Huh? So that's certainly one ambition that was not uh, reached in the Euro-Mediterranean process. And the whole, um, um, the, 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 the main change with the Union for the Mediterranean is that it's a partnership. Mm -hmm. So the projects are agreed on both sides. Uh, for with general, so we know now, we have the sea highways, you have the uh, depollution, you have energy, you have uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, uh, proposals. Uh, so, the very important issue about divisiveness and consensus. I don't want to wake up ghosts, but Iraq was the worst. You can't imagine what was said, even in body language, about Iraq during European meetings. Huh? Because uh, it for the countries that were opposing the war, it was perceived as an issue of civilization. And I'm not using emphatic words. The idea that this whole civiliz uh, civilization, clash of civilization, would become a self-fulfilled prophecy if the war would go on. So they were pretty uh, eager to avoid it. And at one moment, <coughs> President Chirac was quite rude when he spoke about the new members who should uh, uh, being polite when they have just been invited at the table. <laughs> Imagine <laughs> the effect of that in Budapest, in Warsaw. And on the other side, that was the idea that you have those uh, countries who, who don't, it, it was less emotional, but because it was linked to the relationship with the US, it was believed to be an issue of strategic importance. So, really, the, 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 the uh, and especially, especially, because, and this is a political scientist speaking, the division among the European government was not matched in the European opinion. The European opinion was unanimous in opposing the war. And by the way, one of the good news of this terrible war was that there was a consensus between the European opinion and the Arab opinion, which was probably why the self-fulfilling prophecy was not fulfilled. Huh? Because something happened in the fact that you had people demonstrating for the same thing north and south of the Mediterranean, but I'm probably going too far. The most consensual issues are humanitarian issues, which is why it's so easy to raise money. 
and I won't comment more. But I think I'm quite self-explanatory. Uh, huh? Afghanistan. Afghanistan is not in our Middle East. Uh, even in the, in the most expensive British vision of the Middle East, you, you still uh, stop somewhere between uh, the Shatel Arab and uh, so it's really the American vision, uh, strategic vision going to the Middle East uh, that far. Uh, you know, I, uh, I've been studying uh, jihad and I'm writing a book right now about Al-Qaeda. I don't see, but I may be totally wrong, but a direct impact about what is going on in Afghanistan and what is going on in the Middle East. Because uh, the, the missing link is Iraq, and Al-Qaeda has been nearly wiped out of Iraq. When you add the Iraq link with exchange of human resources, financial resources, military resources between the Afghan theater and the Iraq theater, and I'm speaking on the jihadi side, <laughs> not on the coalition side, then there was a link. In that case, I, I don't see the, 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 the impact. And in fact, I see Al-Qaeda getting more and more Asian and less and less Arab in its rhetoric and also in its uh, modus operandi. But that's uh, another story. So the whole idea, you know, uh, Apart from Al-Qaeda network in North, Northern Africa, uh, the um, European involvement in Afghanistan is not on the agenda of the factions huh? in the Middle East. That is how I see the things. Jean-Pierre, I suppose your last word for oh conclusion, yes. so no. if you want to... <laughs> no. Yeah. I want to thank you all really deeply. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much.